Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. All right, this is God's word. Um, Why don't we pray? Let's ask that God would help us to understand. Father, We ask now that by your spirit you would give us understanding and insight. We pray that you would please help us to listen. We pray that you would warm our hearts um, with truth. We pray that you challenge us and change us, we ask. We thank you for John's gospel. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray that we might see him a little bit more clearly. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I've got a simple um, image I want you to have in your mind. It's a wheel. It's not difficult to imagine a a wheel. Let's let's talk about a bike wheel. Um, And and the main point I want you to go away with today, the thing I want you to remember, is that you are a spoke. You're not the center. You're a spoke. You're not the hub. And one of the dangers, I think, that, that happens as we go through life is that we sort of live with this default understanding that my life is me in the middle, and then there's all these different spokes that come out from me. And one of those spokes might be, if you're the sort of religious type, Jesus. You might say, well, I'll have a Jesus spoke in my wheel. And we say, it's great that I've got Jesus in my wheel because he gives a little bit of extra strength, a little bit of extra support to my wheel, and, and he makes everything just a little bit stronger and firmer. But what we're going to see in John 12, what we're going to be challenged about in John 12, is Jesus is no spoke. He's the center. I'm not an expert cyclist, but I think it's true that although the spokes are important, you can live without one. You know, you, your wheel might get slightly out of shape and all the rest of it. You can't live without the center bit, right? And so there's the, there's the image, there's the challenge, and we're going to see that um, as we go through. Right, so we're, we're, sta- okay, we're standing, in John's Gospel, we're standing right on the 
the hinge of John's gospel. This is the bit where the first half of John's gospel is finished, and we're about to embark on the second bit. The first half of John's gospel is the book of signs. It's it's the, the miraculous signs that Jesus did, these seven signs that declare who he is, the Son of God, who has all power, magnificent, awesome, glorious. The first half of John's gospel is full of power. But then in chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And from then on in John's gospel, things change. There are no more miraculous signs until you get to the very end. And everything takes a much more intense turn. And chapter 12 is the transition from the book of of signs and power to the book of the cross, the suffering of Jesus. So we're right there on the hinge. And and Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And now look what happens at the start of chapter 12. We're told about this dinner. Jesus comes back to Bethany, uh, where Lazarus lived, and they hold a dinner in his honor. Okay, I want you to imagine for a second that you could take a bird's eye view of that meal. What would it look like? Well, I mean, okay, it would look slightly crazy. But the picture that you're given is that it all is centered on Jesus. You can imagine as he returns back from wherever he's been, he comes back to Bethany. There's such a buzz. Everyone wants to get to him. He's the center. Everything's moving towards him. The dinner is for him. It's in his honor. He is the focus. He's where people's eyes are. Yeah, they're slightly fascinated by Lazarus as well, but only because Jesus raised him from the dead. It's all focused on Jesus. That's what I mean about this wheel. He is the center. And we're going to see three Three truths from this passage. We're going to see three things about this moment, this meal that happens in Bethany. And the first one is that it is a worship moment. This meal that happens has a flavor of worship about it. Now, at first sight, you may say, well, it doesn't say anything about worship. They have a meal, they pour some perfume on him. What's that got to do with worship? Well, I think if you listen carefully to John, John's gospel, there are echoes in the language that he uses that he wants us to pick up. The language of fragrance, the language of it filling the whole house. This is a sacred moment. This idea of an aroma that fills a house has huge temple connotations. Back in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where you went to worship God. And in the temple, there was incense that was offered and the aroma filled the whole temple with beauty. The the worship of God in this fragrance. But now, we're not in a temple, we're in a house, we're at a meal table, and suddenly this language of fragrance filling the whole house is here. And we may say, well, why? Well, that fits exactly with what John has been telling us about who Jesus is. 
You see, John, as he writes his gospel, he thinks the temple is a big deal. And back in John chapter 2, Jesus said, I'm the temple. This building, this physical building, that's, you, can, you can pull that down and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus was talking about his body. Jesus says, I'm the temple. And then in John chapter 4, he has a conversation with a woman at a well. And she says, I don't know where we're supposed to worship, on this mountain or this mountain, who knows? Jesus says, no, you don't go to a place now to worship. You don't need a building now. You've got me. Jesus is the place of worship. Jesus is the one to whom worship is given. If you want to meet with God, you don't now go to a building, you go to a person. And so here they are at this meal table and Jesus is present at the meal and that means it's a worship moment. And so John, I think, deliberately uses some temple language to say this is a sacred worship thing happening. Because if you've listened to anything that John's told you from the first half of his gospel, if you've seen anything of the power of Jesus, you will know that to worship him, that's the appropriate response. John does, Jesus is not interested in simply becoming impressive to you or someone that you like or someone that you tweet or someone that you follow in a kind of abstract way. He wants to be the one that you worship or to put it in the language of a wheel, he wants to become the center. What does it mean to worship? It means that everything revolves around him. If you're going to, we'd never talk about this, um, the solar system like this, but you could say the solar system worships the sun in the sense that it all revolves around the sun. That's not particularly helpful, but that's the idea. The idea is everything revolves around... <laughs> that was hopeless. Everything revolves... It came into my mind. It wasn't a helpful one. Um, everything revolves around Jesus. Okay, well, let's look in the details then. What does it say happened at this worship moment? What happened at this meal that might help us to understand what it means to worship Jesus? Now, here is where I think we go, well, what happened was that Mary anointed Jesus' feet. Well, hang on a second. <laughs> Poor Martha. Right? Mary gets all the credit here in this story. Even the heading, Jesus anointed at Bethany. But they're having a dinner. And we're told this little, Martha gets two words. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. She gets, she gets completely overlooked. Yeah, but Mary poured this perfume on it. We'll get to her in a minute. But Martha was there and she served. I just want, can you turn me down a little bit? I feel like I'm very loud and I'm deafening myself. Um, and that idea of served, it literally means Martha ministered. That's what she was doing. In this worship moment, she serves. 
So she's making food. She's getting things ready. She's preparing. She's bringing things out. And all of the time, where do you think her eyes are fixed? Who is she looking at? All the time she's looking at Jesus. I'm serving you. You raised my brother from the dead. You saved my brother. I'll do anything for you. And here is worship. As Martha serves this Lord who saved her brother, I'll make you dinner. And her eyes, you can imagine her, can't you? Coming in with the food. She's looking at Jesus. She wants to please Jesus because of what he's done. You see, sometimes we think that worship has to be some grand gesture. We'll get to that. But, you know, worship can be about our everyday serving. When you get to the book of Romans, it says, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. Offer yourself to God. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve you? So as you make food for someone, as you call someone, as you go to meet up for coffee with someone, as you bake cakes, I love the fact we we prayed today for the cake baking rotor. And there's a little bit in my heart that goes, well, why are we praying for them? Why aren't we praying for the important people in church? You know, the people who do the important stuff. Because that's to fall into exactly this trap. Martha served. And some of us worship God by making cake. Praise the Lord. This is a worship moment, and in this worship moment, there are those who served. Just like in the temple, there were priests who served, who ministered, who did the everyday jobs, who got things ready, who sorted things out. Mary, Martha, served. What about Lazarus? What was he doing? Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. Here's worship. Martha serves, that's worship. Here's worship. Enjoying the presence of Jesus. Enjoying being with him. Can you imagine that meal? I mean, Lazarus, what a week he's had. He's dead four days. He's been in paradise for four days. Presumably. And then, I don't know how it happens. It's weird, isn't it? Someone comes to him and says, Lazarus, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but Jesus is calling you. You're going to have to go back. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to go back there? Oh, man. But here it is again. Lazarus, he, he wants to recline and be with Jesus. He wants to enjoy his presence because that's worship. To take time to enjoy him, to be with him. And if we want to think about what it means to worship him, then let me ask you this how much do you enjoy simply being in his presence? You might say, What does that mean? How How do I do that? Well, it means setting aside some time. Perhaps to read some of the Bible, to listen to him, to enjoy him, to spend time just quietly before him. 
not rushing around in our busyness, but making time for him. Enjoying him. Remember those words that we started the service with? Better is one day in your courts and a thousand elsewhere. Jesus, better is one day sitting with you, enjoying you. That's worship. Enjoying God. And then there's Mary. Mary, what does her worship in this sacred moment look like? Well, she takes about a half liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She pours it on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And the sheer extravagance of her act is what constitutes her worship. Look, we, we, we've got to get a sense of this, okay? It is... It's a ridiculous act. It's, it's so extravagant. Presumably this perfume, I don't know much about perfume. I, I'm not an expert. But my normal sense is that with a jar of perfume, it lasts a bit, right? It lasts a while. You don't need a lot to make it. You need a little spray and, and you're fine. I mean, you can go into the... Debenhams and the bit where there's all those people and you just get one of theirs and spray yourself and it lasts, right? <laughs> you can tell I don't know much. <laughs> She's got this perfume and it's worth 300 denarii. That is a year's wages. Look, let's say, okay, let's, let's say it's worth 25,000 pounds. 25,000 pounds. And she just pours it all over his feet. Does that not feel to you extraordinary? We don't know where she got it from. We, it, it, it's likely that it was been in the family. It's likely that it was a, a, an investment. It was something that was important. It was something that was valuable to them. It, it, it would have been a, a source of security for her. And yet she just pours it all out. And again, if you think about the idea of the wheel, you can imagine her as she thinks, I just want to get to Jesus. You raised my brother from the dead. I don't care. I'll give you everything. She so loves him. She doesn't do that thing of looking around the house and going, oh, I suppose I'd better give him a gift. I wonder what I've got. You know, what can I get away with? Let's have a look what we got in Tiger last week. Oh, here's a carrot sharpener. Let's give her that. You, you know, he, she... She doesn't go for the cheapest thing she can find. She says, what's the most valuable thing I've got? What is the most precious thing I own? I want you to have that. So here's my question for you. What is the most precious thing in your life? What is the most important thing in your life? Would you give that to Jesus? 
Would you entrust him with that? And, and I, I get, okay, I get that it's difficult for us to work this out. I get that, you know, we, we, we hear this and we say, what does this mean? Does this mean I have to empty my bank account and dump it all, you know, just chuck it all in the air and throw it? I don't, what, what does it mean? What it means is a heart posture that is so Jesus-centered that says, Jesus, I just want to, I want to love you. I want to worship you. And I will, I will do extravagant things. I will give things up. You know, when was the last time we gave things up? When was the last time we extravagantly showed Jesus how much he means to us? Now, of course, if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian or, or, or you're new to this stuff, you may well be thinking, what? these guys are more crazy than I thought they were. Why would you want to give stuff up for some bloke who lived 2,000 years ago? What was that about? I'll tell you what it's about. This man, Jesus, is the man who saved my life. This man, Jesus, is the man who raised me from the dead. I was dead. I was dead in my sin. I was dead as Lazarus was dead. I was dead and I was heading for hell forever. And Jesus saved me. There is nothing in my life which means more to me than what he has done. And that is worship. Worship is a heart posture that says, Jesus, you're the center. It's all for you. All for you. And as she pours out this perfume, as she gives up this security that perhaps was her what was going to keep her safe for the future, the fragrance of it fills the whole house and it becomes a sacred moment. It's a worship moment. So what's it going to look like for you to, serve, to, to worship? How can, you, how can you serve like Martha? How can you enjoy Jesus like Lazarus? How can you pour out extravagantly for Jesus? like Mary. But I want to move on. It's a worship moment, but the second thing I want you to see is that it is an exposing moment. Because one person in the house is not happy. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, this is verse 4, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas has been one of Jesus' disciples for three years. He's listened to Jesus teach. He's seen Jesus perform miracles. He's seen all the signs. He was there. He had a front row seat to see the power of Jesus. Judas has been there. He's part of the gang. He's one of the 12. He's part of the crew. He's got a t-shirt. He's, he's part of the in crowd. What is it that exposes him? It's when he encounters someone who truly worships. And suddenly he finds himself exposed. His response to this moment of worship that happens at the mealtime is to despise it. And he just can't help himself and it comes 
flooding out of him because his heart is not a heart of worship. Who is the center of Judas's wheel? Judas's. Yeah, Jesus has been a spoke. Jesus has been fun to be around. Jesus has got some power. This might go well for me. This might help my career. This might advance my political interests. This might enable me to get rich. You can be a spoke in my wheel, Jesus. Then he meets someone who worships Jesus and he goes, whoa, that's ridiculous. I'm not up for that. And so he objects. And he objects in a kind of, um, he objects in a way which sounds on the surface of it quite godly way to, to object, right? We, we could have helped the poor. Why didn't we help the poor? He doesn't care about the poor though. Um, John tells us what his real motive was. He just wants the money so that he can help himself to it. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience of seeing someone do something for Jesus that just makes you feel uncomfortable. You ever experienced that? And it makes you feel uncomfortable because it begins to expose your heart. I've had that. Loads of times. You see someone making a decision or doing something and you just think to yourself, well, that's, it, it makes you feel uncomfortable. And your reaction can be, well, that's just about over the top, isn't it? They're being a bit extreme. You don't need to act like that. You don't need to be that extreme. Jesus doesn't call for that much. And actually what we're doing is we're feeling in that moment a challenge in our own hearts. Because when we encounter someone who is worshipping Jesus, it can leave us feeling exposed. And here is Judas, exposed, and he tries to find a way to wriggle out of it. And the tragedy is, we're going to see over the coming chapters of John's Gospel, how this now sets Judas on a trajectory towards betrayal and eventually being lost. Because Judas never allowed Jesus to be the center. He always kept him as a spoke. And Jesus is not a spoke. He's the Son of God. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of all majesty. And if there are those prods in our own heart, we must not ignore that. When you see someone else doing something and you think, well, that's a bit crazy and ridiculous, makes me feel a bit rubbish. Don't belittle them. Don't do them down. Instead, come before God and say, Lord, please would you change my heart? I don't want to be a Judas. Lord Jesus, please would you take central place in my heart? Please would you teach me how you want me to worship you, what you want me to do for you, how you want me to live for you?
You don't have to copy that person. You don't have to become like them. But we do have to say, Jesus, what would it mean for me to put you at the center? Challenge me. So I think in John chapter 12, as you encounter Jesus and a worship moment, some of us will be left feeling very exposed by that. But here's the third thing. It's a worship moment. It's an exposing moment. But thirdly, it's a prophetic moment. What happens at that mealtime is prophetic. Um, what I mean by that is it is an act that is telling you something, that God is telling you something in that act that he wants you to know and he wants the whole world to know. I don't think Mary really knew what she was doing. (laughs) She knew that she loved him. She knew that he'd raised her brother from the dead. Mary knew that Jesus was awesome. She knew that she wanted to give everything to Jesus, but she didn't know exactly what she was doing when she poured oil on, uh, perfume on him. Remember last week, um, um, Caiaphas, the high priest, last week Caiaphas spoke and said, look, it's better if we kill Jesus and then save Israel. And Caiaphas meant it one way, but actually it was God's intention that that was exactly what should happen. And Caiaphas was prophesying about what was to come, that Jesus would die to save people. And so it is with Mary's act. Mary's act was an act to show love and devotion and worship of Jesus, but it became an act which said much more than she realized it was saying, and that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 7. As Judas is busy pointing the finger and trying to deflect his own inadequacy, his own worship dysfunction, he was trying to distract from himself by pointing at Mary. Jesus defends her. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. She's anointing me for burial. That's what she's doing. This is the moment. God intended that this moment should happen so that you would understand what I came to do. You claim to care about the poor. But Judas, this is a moment in, in history, a moment. The poor will always be there to be a concern for you. And Judas, to be honest, I'm not sure you've really shown that much concern for the poor anyway. But this moment, this matters. This is a prophetic moment. And Judas, you're not seeing it. You're missing it. Jesus says, you should understand that I'm about to die. She's prepared me for my burial. Because that's a slightly odd thing to say. I, I, I'd love to have seen Mary's face. I, I, I'd love to know what, what she thought. What, you, what, what do you mean? I'm not preparing you for burial. I was showing you how much I love you. She says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to die. And we say, well, why? Why is he going to die? Why, why, why is he going to be buried? Well, 
If you go back to the very first verse we read, chapter 12, verse 1, John wants you to know something very important. This was six days before the Passover. The Passover is coming. The Passover is coming. This is setting up the rest of John's gospel, which is all building up to the Passover. What happened at the Passover is that a lamb was killed, a lamb, a sacrificial substitute. The lamb dies to remind the people of the time back in the Exodus when the Lamb died so that the oldest son could be saved. Jesus is going to die at the point of the Passover. Why? Because he is the sacrifice. Again and again we're going to see this. It's Passover. Oh, it's nearly Passover. It's Passover when the lambs are going to be sacrificed. And Jesus says, you've anointed me because I'm the sacrificial lamb who's going to die to save the world. And so this perfume has been poured on him. And if you take the temple imagery and you push it and you keep thinking about it, there was only one person within the temple who was anointed with oil. And that was the priest. Listen, listen to this um, from Exodus 30. Don't worry about, particularly about turning to it. But you get this... Um, oil that they had to make, this perfume that they had to make. Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much of that of fragrant cinnamon, some, some calmus, some cassia, um, and a hin of olive oil. Make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. And then it says, anoint Aaron, that's the priest. And consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Do not pour it on anyone else's body. And here is Jesus as he prepares for this moment when he will die. And he is being anointed with fragrant perfume. Why? Because he's not just the sacrificial Passover lamb, he's also the priest who's going to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. It's all so rich. John's language is so rich and he says, this act that Mary has done is prophetic. It's pointing forwards. John is saying, do you see it? This is why you make Jesus the center. This is why Jesus is the hub and not just the spoke because he's the lamb who will die for you. He is the priest who will offer the sacrifice on your behalf. He is the one who can save you. He's the hope. And unless you can see, unless you can see the prophetic act, the moment that this is pointing forwards to the one who dies... You'd never make him the center. If he's a good teacher, make him a spoke. If he's a healer, make him a spoke. If he's a wise leader, make him a spoke. If he's a comfort for you when you feel sad, make him a spoke. But if he is the sacrificial lamb and the priest and the eternal son of God and the all-powerful one, you'd better make him the center. You see? You've got to see the prophetic act of what Mary is doing. That's what's going on at this meal. It's a pretty impressive meal, isn't it? What a moment. It's a moment of temple worship. It's a moment that exposes 
human hearts. It's a moment that prophetically points to Jesus dying on the cross. And the response of the religious leaders, verse 10, all the crowds are coming, they want to see Jesus, they also want to see Lazarus, so the chief priests made plans to kill that. I mean, you can't make this up, can you? They make plans to kill Lazarus as well. They want to kill Lazarus. Jesus raised him from the dead. Okay, which team do you want to be on? Right? Let's play a game as we finish. Which team do you want to be on? Do you want to be be on team raise Lazarus from the dead or team kill Lazarus? But here's the bonkers thing. When you don't put Jesus at the center, you end up... You end up wanting to destroy. They want to kill him. So this afternoon, look, this afternoon, let's land this. Will you come and will you worship Jesus? Just like Mary, Martha and Lazarus did at that mealtime. Will you serve him in the ordinary, everyday, practical details of life? Will you enjoy him? And will you extravagantly pour out your life for him? Because he is the priest, the sacrifice, the saviour. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this moment, this meal, which in many ways was just a, just a meal. And yet it was a meal that spoke so powerfully a sacred moment of worship. And Father, we pray that you would help us. Please expose where Jesus is not at the center. And Lord, please, would you make him the center of all that we do. Lord, we ask for your grace. Please forgive us. And we ask that even this afternoon, we might say, Jesus, be the center Be the center of all that we do. Be the center of our church. Be the center of our lives. Be the center of our families and our homes. Be the center of everything. We want to be spokes in your wheel. And we ask it in your precious name. Amen.